Well, good morning again. Great to be with you. Um, as Jacob said, my name's John, uh, John Sugars. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And uh, I'm what you call an executive pastor. Uh, I have the privilege of doing all sorts of things like uh, administration, operations, uh, finance, human resources. I look after all those and I've got a great team that works with me. You know, I do all the, all the things that the other pastors don't want to do, <laughs> basically. And that's fine. I love doing it. It's terrific. It's great. Um, I'm uh, from Australia, uh, if you're wondering about the accent. And uh, with, with Deb, my wife, we've been here five years. Uh, Deb works here also with the church. She's involved in the small groups ministry. You probably might have met her along the way somewhere. <laughs> it's so good to be with you here this morning. Uh, it's so great to have so many of you here, and uh, welcome to you. Welcome also to those in Platinum, and likewise on, out, on, on our online service, uh, watching from somewhere else in the world. Great to have you here with us this morning. Last week here at Two Seasons, we started a new series, and it was a series called Promises 101, Yes and Amen. You know, every day... We are bombarded by the world with broken promises, with fake news, with flat-out lies. And promises are lightly made, aren't they? And even more lightly kept. And, you know, that has an effect on us, doesn't it? It makes us, makes us a bit wary, makes us a bit sceptical. And we worry about scams that might happen and, well, sometimes things just seem too good to be true. And we're very cautious about that. And even here in Dubai, in this wonderful city, promises are often made but not always kept. You might have been promised a great job when you got here, but... Or you might have been promised a pay rise soon. But... Or you, you were promised that you'd get your passport back. But... Life lets us down, doesn't it? And it happens even here in Dubai. And it's horrible, isn't it? It's not nice when it happens. And yet... When you think about it, how often do we promise something to someone and don't, even with good intentions, don't deliver, don't fulfill that promise? Sure, I'll be there. I'll see you on Thursday. And something comes up and you never make it. And even religion is full of broken promises. How often have you heard, be good and you will get to heaven? And that's a broken promise. The way you treat others now is the way that you'll be treated in the next life. Hmm. But the God of the Bible does make promises and he keeps them. Even though around us the world is full of broken promises, 
He alone is able to keep his promises. And he can keep them because, well, he's the creator of the universe. He is totally sovereign, totally in control of everything. As we saw in our previous series called Origins, when we looked at Genesis chapters 1 to 12, we saw God the creator, supreme, sovereign, in control of everything. And we can walk with unshakable confidence in God's promises. But what are those promises exactly? We can ask him for anything, can we? That he'll do whatever we ask? Sometimes I think we think that God has made a promise to us, but it's really just our own wishful thinking. It's, 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 it's a desire we have. It's something we need or think we need. But no, God, God will do what is best for us, not necessarily what we want. This summer series explores some of the, the major promises that God has made in his word to us. And today we're looking at the hardest and the greatest promise. What do you think is the most hardest promise to accept in the Bible? What's, what's the most difficult promise from God? What's the one we don't like the most? Now, you might be standing there, sitting there thinking, well, what do you mean, John? There is nothing hard about following our God. He is the most kind, the most loving, the most caring, the most generous, the most gracious God ever. He would never promise to do anything that wasn't in my best interest. He's a wonderful God. He's, in fact, how dare you even suggest that he makes something like that? What could he possibly promise to us that would be hard to accept? Maybe that's your thought. Or maybe you're thinking, uh, there are lots of hard questions in the Bible, things I don't understand, and maybe, maybe John's talking about that. Or maybe you're thinking, well, I don't even know what the Bible is, actually. I don't know much about this Christianity. I'm just finding my feet. First, thing, first time I've heard about it. Uh, I don't really know much about it at all. Maybe that's where you're at. Well, I, I want to spend some time today talk about something that I think will shock you. Something that I think will make you stop and think about this God that you're following. Or this God that you might have heard about. In the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Rome way back in the first century, way back about 57 AD. And because Paul had never visited those Christians in person, he was writing to explain everything about Christianity. 
and especially about what had been happening in terms of, of Jesus Christ. And things had been happening only 25 years earlier than the letter he was writing back in Palestine. In chapter 8, in his letter to the Romans, Paul starts to unpack what it means for us that Jesus Christ came to earth as the Son of God. And Paul tells us how we should respond to this incredible happening. In verse 13 of chapter 8, Paul makes this extraordinary statement. One of the most devastating statements, one of the most devastating assertions in the whole Bible. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now, what is Paul talking about? Romans chapter 8 also puts it this way a few verses earlier. In verse 5, he says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Now, what's this living by the flesh that Paul is talking about? Well, it's another way of saying living our way. Living independently of God. Not living the way God wants us to live. Living in a sinful way, if you like. Separate from God. That's, that's what he's talking about by living in the, in the flesh. Earlier in this letter, Paul, uh, to the Romans, he has already said similar things. So in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. And then in Romans chapter 6, he says, For the wages of sin is death. Now what Paul is talking about is exactly what we heard in our series prior to this one, in our origin series in Genesis 1 to 12, when we looked at chapter 3, the third talk. Do you remember that? Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent. And remember in that, in chapter 3, we read that the serpent tempted Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve wasn't just disobeying God's rules. What she was doing was far, far worse than that. She was involved in an act of rebellion. She was wanting to be God herself. She was trying to throw God, not just out of the garden, but off the planet. His planet. <laughs> Eve and Adam with her were saying to God, ever so politely, ever so gently, thanks God, but we're fine without you. We can handle this ourselves. We can manage on our own. We don't need you anymore. 
we will make up the rules from now on. And if we need you, we'll, 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 we'll come and see you if we need you. It's okay. Thanks very much. You see, they wanted to be able to decide for themselves what was right and what was wrong. That's what it meant to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They weren't just breaking some rules that God had said, don't eat from that tree. That's, that's, that's a small part of it. They were taking over. They were instigating a rebellion. It was a rebellion going on. So what is sin then? From Genesis 3, from those passages, it is a heart that chooses to rebel against God. And what's more, if you were there or if I was there, we would have done exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And that's what uh, Paul is saying in his letter to the Romans earlier in chapter 3, when he puts it this way. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. That They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And then he sums it all up in the last verse. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the way of the flesh that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. That, and that is the way of all of us. And it leads to death. What choices did God have once Adam and Eve had done this? Think about it. God had a rebellion on his hands. What was he to do? Well, the most common question or, or uh, response, I guess, when I ask people that is, well, why couldn't God... Just overlook it. Why was it such a big deal? Why couldn't he just turn a blind eye? Especially as he loves us so much. I mean, I thought God was supposed to be loving. Why not just forgive and forget? I mean, we're expected to do that all the time, aren't we? Isn't that what we're told to do as, as little children growing up? Just forgive and forget your, your brother or your sister. Get over it. Don't worry about it. And uh, my marriage is a bit like that. Don't know what your marriage is like. But my marriage, forgiving and forgetting, it happens all the time in my marriage. I'm always forgetting and Deb, my wife, is always forgiving. Seriously, though, why didn't God just forgive and forget? It's easy to forget sometimes what God is like. 
We emphasize the great and good things that God has done. So much so that sometimes we forget the other parts of God's character, of what he's like. God is loving. No doubt about that. In fact, God is love, the Bible tells us. That is who he is. But that's not all he is. God is also just. He's not only loving. Now, let's just think about justice for a minute. We all like justice. It's a good concept. It's a good idea, especially if it's in our favor. Especially if we deserve it. Justice is good. It is fair. It is a good thing. You wouldn't want God to be unjust, would you? Just in the same way that if your boss refuses to pay your salary, you get upset with him. No, that's not fair. That's not just. I should be paid for my work. And you get upset with them. Well, that's okay. That's what justice is all about. Well then, back to our Genesis 3 garden. What would be the just thing for God to do after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, after all, Adam and Eve and us, we've just told God that we want to be God, not him. We've just tried to kick God off his own planet. We've just rebelled against him. We've just turned our backs on him. We've just ignored him. We've just hidden from him. The just thing for God to have done is, well, he should have wiped us off the planet and started again. He should have punished us by destroying us, each one of us, for a heart of rebellion against him. That would have been the fair and just thing to do. Justice is tough sometimes, isn't it? We like it when people who have hurt us or offended us or acted unfairly towards us or towards some other people, we like it when they're given justice, when they're stopped, when they're punished for what they're doing. We don't like it when justice visits us personally. When we deserve to be judged for the way that we have hurt others or acted wrongly. And yet we still think justice is right and fair, don't we? Sometimes, as Christians, we are so keen to talk about the love of God, that we forget that he's a just God as well. And when we think about that, it is a good thing that he is just, isn't it? I mean, we wouldn't like the creation to be run by a biased, corrupt or unjust God, would we? We wouldn't like that. And we, so we respect a God who is fair and just. And so... The question then is, does God condemn people to hell, to an eternal death? 
Well, if he's a just God, a fair God, a loving God, then yes, people are condemned to hell. People get what they deserve. You see, that is what hell is. It is giving people their just deserts. Hell is, a, is not a mean God saying, you haven't reached my standard, you're not good enough, you broke my rules, I don't like you anymore. It's, it, that is not God. Hell is God saying, so you want to live without me? Really? Okay, you will. God's, God says, with tears in his eyes, I don't want to do this. But if that's what you really want, an eternity without me, and without any of the goodness that I bring to this world, all right then, that's your choice. Now, it's not nice though, is it? It feels uncomfortable. We don't like talking about hell, do we? Sometimes it seems almost unfair, and, and yet we know it's not. Because justice is good. Imagine what the world would be like without justice. Now, here you're thinking, hmm, hang on a sec. The world I know is there's a lot of injustice in the world. Plenty of unjust things going on in the world. And, and that's exactly right. There are lots of unjust things going on in the world. And we don't like it. It's terrible, isn't it? And that is why it is so good. It is such a relief to know that God is just. And his judgment will fall on all people everywhere fairly. Justly. And you know what? When he judges, and every person will be judged... When he judges, nobody will cry out and say, this is unfair. Not a soul will do that. For everybody will say, this is fair. I deserve it. A day is coming when everyone will be judged justly and fairly. A day when evil will be removed. A day when everything will be washed clean, white as snow, restored to pure relationships. God's justice is good. His judgment is fair. Back to our story of sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It's not just disobeying some rules made up by God. It is a heart that says no to God. A heart that pushes him away. A heart that thinks that we know what is best. A heart that wants to make up our own minds independently of God our creator. You don't think like that anymore, do you? I'm a Christian. I love God. Well, when was the last time you asked God for something? Um, probably in the last day or so. And I bet you know exactly what you want God to do for you. 
You need something right now. And it might be something really big. Oh, Lord, I need a job right now. I must have a job. I, I, I have to leave the country or I'll get into trouble. I, I need a job. Please give me a job. Or it might be, I need, a, I need a life partner. I need a spouse. I need a husband. I need a wife. Big things like that. Or it might actually be small things. Oh, Lord, I need that parking spot right outside my favorite supermarket. <laughs> or, oh, Lord, I, I'm so tired of standing up in the metro. I need a seat. Big or small, you know what is best for you, don't you? Oops. Because that is a heart that thinks it knows better than God. You see, we all deserve to be destroyed. We are stubborn and hard of heart. We don't seek God. We don't trust him. We don't even do good, especially if we're feeling hurt and pained ourselves. And that is the hardest, the most difficult promise in the Bible. You, we all will die. And we all deserve it. Well, what hope is there for us then? Well, our hope lies in the fact that he didn't destroy Adam and Eve back in the garden. He didn't wipe them out. Nor has he destroyed us. Why not? <laughs> you know the answer. Because he loves us. We, all humans are his very own creation. Just like a um, new parents with a newborn child, just born, love that child and are amazed what they've created. So too God loves each one of the children that he's born, each one of us. We're loved deeply by him and we are made in his image. God then had a dilemma, a problem. On the one hand, he loves us. But on the other hand, he must be, can't help himself but be just. That's his dilemma. And this is the other promise we're looking at from God today. From his word. God promises not only death for all, but, and this is the greatest promise of the Bible, he promises to save us from that death. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. In John chapter 11, just after Lazarus had died, Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And finally, Jesus says in John chapter 3, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And boy, do we need saving. So his solution was to allow his own son to die instead of us. To allow him to take the punishment. To take the death that we deserved. And his son, Jesus, willingly agreed to that. Can you imagine that? Imagine being in a courtroom with the judge in his robes, sitting up high behind a big table, and he slams down his hammer and says, you are guilty. And then he gets up from the table, takes off his robe, takes off his wig, and comes down to you, And says to you, I will take the punishment. I will go to the gallows. I will take the injection. I will be hanged. Jesus, as the Son of God, has done that instead of us. For us. Even though he has declared us guilty of rebellion against him, he is willing to take the punishment we deserve, to die instead of us. Can you feel the enormity of what God has done? What the Father and the Son have done for humanity. That is the offer that is on the table for us waiting for us to accept it. All we need to do is say, please forgive me. Please save me. I want to stop rebelling and I want to hand my life back to you. You are my creator. I am made to be your image bearer, not made to be you. I'm your representative. I'm not you. And only Jesus can make this happen for us. We are not capable. We are not capable of doing it ourselves. We need Jesus to fix us up. And that is exactly what God promises to do. In the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says this, speaking on behalf of God, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. A whole new heart he's giving us. Take out the old one, put in a new one. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, it means that God has planted his Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our lives, to change us, to make us new. He has taken out our fleshy, stony heart, and he's given us a brand new spiritual heart. A heart that is able to follow him. A heart that is being changed into the likeness of the way we were originally made. Run and directed by his own spirit, the Holy Spirit. That is the greatest and the most beautiful promise we could ever have. All we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is say to Jesus, please forgive me. Please save me. I want to stop rebelling and I want to hand my life back to you. Well, how will you respond to these two promises? If you are a Christian, that is, if you're someone who has said already to Jesus, forgive me, take me, change me, I am yours, because of what Jesus has done on the cross then look at what Romans 8 is saying to you. And he's, it's saying now, because of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on a cross, you can live by the Holy Spirit. You can live like this. Verse 5 says, Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 6 the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And in verses 10 and 11, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit's work is to continue to get rid of the flesh in your life. That's right. You still sin. You do realize that, don't you? You still sin. And you will until you die or until Jesus returns again. And our obligation, our role, if you like, is to work with the Spirit of God, to put to death the old ways, to put to death the pre-Christian ways, the ways of the world, the flesh. Yes, we are still battling against our old ways. Where is the victory then? I thought we're supposed to be victorious as Christians. Well, the final victory will come only when we are resurrected literally from the dead. That's the ultimate victory. The current victory that we experience now is that we have a taste of what that is like. Of life and peace. The beautiful taste of what real life is like. And the peace that comes from knowing the one true God, Abba, Father. In fact, verse 15 
of Romans 8 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. My earthly father, my earthly dad, died when I was 12 years old. Now, some of you might find it hard to believe that I was 12 once. (laughs) I was. Looked a bit different. But I missed out on a childhood with my father. And I'm sure some of you too did, either literally or figuratively. But when I became a Christian at age 17, I was adopted by God as his son. And I haven't looked back since. It was a beautiful experience for me to be able to say to God, Abba, Daddy. My life changed from that moment onwards. The Spirit of God was in me, changing me to want to follow my Father. I still rebel regularly. I still sin. But he is still there, encouraging me to keep on following him, to keep on serving him, to keep on telling people what true life, as life, life as it was meant to be lived, what, it, what that is like. Is Jesus real in my life? There is nothing more real than the peace he gives and the life he offers. Nothing is better. Nothing at all. And I can't wait for the day when it will be perfected. When I die and I am risen to be with Christ forever. In fact, that is exactly where our dear sister Karen is right now. As sad and as painful as it is for us, for her, she has full victory now. She is with our Lord. All her pain is gone. She is victorious. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've never really met Jesus. Maybe you've never repented, never said you're sorry for turning your back on him, for hiding from him, from rebelling against him. And maybe you've never given your life to him. If that's you, then let me encourage you to do that today. He promises salvation and life to all who believe in his son, Jesus. And by believe, I mean believe that he is indeed God in human form and that he has taken away our fleshly heart and given us a spiritual heart, his his Holy Spirit, by his death on the cross. And And he promises that if we really do believe that, then that new heart, that Holy Spirit, will enable us to follow Christ in our daily lives with incredible consequences for us. 
There is no better time in your life to be transformed. It won't solve all your problems. You won't get rich. You still have to face many hard issues throughout your life and face death as well. But you will have the spirit of the creator of the universe walking side by side with you, living in you, giving you a taste for what is to come for eternity. And all you need to do is say, please forgive me, Jesus. Please save me. I want to stop rebelling and I want to hand my life back to you. Thank you for dying in my place. Please help me to follow you now and forever. If you've never done that, please let me encourage you to do that right now. In your seat, silently, privately to God. In fact, let's all bow our heads now and pray. And if you want to say those words now for the first time ever or even as a recommitment to Jesus, then say quietly to Jesus after me, please forgive me, Jesus. Please save me. I want to stop rebelling and I want to hand my life back to you. Thank you for dying in my place. Please help me follow you now and forever. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer just now, I'd love to meet you. Please come and say hello to me. And I want to celebrate with you uh, the, the new life that you are now going to live. I'll be down the front here uh, on your right. Uh, I'd love to meet you and celebrate with you. Please come and see me.